You're listening to The Pod by Gen Z. I'm your host for today, Dajwar Khandukar. Last week, I spoke with Ramiz Bakhtiar, former UN Youth Representative for Afghanistan and the founder of the network of former youth delegates to the UN. Ramiz often writes about the power of inclusive participation, civic engagement, and the role of young people in peace processes. Here's our conversation in today's episode. I was I was born and raised in a remote village in um, southern Afghanistan. And as a child, I was um, a shepherd. Um, I had five to six sheep always, uh, as I remember, that I was taking care of together uh, with my siblings. Um, I was also helping my father on the farm uh, and my mother at home um, together with my, uh, with my sister. Um, and I think I, I, I got that uh, gene of working, working at home uh, or, or helping my mother from my father because I remember that my father was uh, was also cooking sometimes at home, and uh, and I think that's why I also like to cook um, um, all the time. Part of my childhood was spent hiding from rockets and bullets, and uh, other part of my childhood was spent during the Taliban regime when they first ruled from uh, nineteen ninety six to two thousand and one. It was a dark period. Um, actually, it was a very very dark one. Um, I do not remember much because I was very young. Um, but what I remember uh, are the nights that I had to go to bed hungry because we did not have enough food to eat. But we were um, extremely re- uh, resilient and um, and never had the idea of giving up. Um, we we kept fighting. Um, that is that is what I remember from my childhood most. Uh, but but when I reflect today, this is this is not only my story, Tajwar. This is the story of the vast majority of um, Afghans, mainly the young generation of Afghanistan. Very much so. And so as you grew up in that environment in your early to middle childhood, um, what did it feel like to you as far as what you thought your life was going to be in Afghanistan going forward? Did you expect the country to you know, continue on the trajectory that it seemed to be in during the first period of Taliban rule? Did you foresee it being that way as you would grow up? What did you think as a child and a teenager living through that era? I think... Uh... There wasn't, um, there wasn't uh, always the opportunity to uh, think, to speak, to get involved uh, as, a, as a young person in Afghanistan. Um, children and young people, um, I would say uh, very cautiously, culturally and, and because, of, uh, because of the war and, and um, the, the limited space for discussion and debate, um, the environment or the space for young people and mainly children uh, uh, have not been there for them to speak or to think. People will think when they write or when they are uh, supposed to speak. So um, there wasn't a, a, a much of an opportunity to reflect on. Um, and, and what I remember from my childhood is, is a lot of hardships, not luxury. And when children and young uh, people are in, 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 are placed in such a such an environment, they don't have much space to reflect on and, and to think and to become critical thinkers. But what I see today is is a full circle of um, uh, of history. 
um, there are a lot of similarities. And I'm happy to say today that there is also a lot to learn from, mainly for young Afghans. Um, to to think about what happened during the 90s, um, in, during the civil war, and then during the Taliban, and then during during a, democ a, democ a democracy in, in the past 20 years, and now getting back to what was actually in, in, um, in from 1996 to 2001 during, during the Taliban regime uh, when they were ruling first. And why we're back to that place is I think what I, is that I think um, about a lot and I talk to um, to a number of young Afghans uh, who um, also care about Afghanistan, they care about the future of the country and they care about the future of the, the, the coming generations and that where we see Afghanistan, I think we did not have a lot of debate and reflections in the past and that's why today we're back to where we were um, 20, um, 20, 22 years ago. Right. And there's obviously a lot of similarity in the carryover for, you know, the cyclical uh, patterns of where Afghanistan is at and where they were just a couple of decades ago. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with the various foreign interventions that have taken place in Afghanistan over the de decades. And throughout most of your life in Afghanistan, obviously, the United States government is who was involved most actively in propping up the Afghan the democratic Afghan government over the last 20 or so years, that was the period of time during which you yourself got more engaged in your activism and um, your social work. I guess what I want to say is what was the transition to that form of government and what the American involvement in Afghanistan meant for um, civil society and for youth engagement? When the international community came to Afghanistan led by the United States, um, it was a very big opportunity for Afghanistan. It was a huge opportunity for Afghanistan, for the people of Afghanistan, and to build the country, to reconstruct the country. But what actually happened was the problem, the way the transition was led after the international community um, uh, intervened in Afghanistan and, um, and um, toppled the Taliban government um, in 2001. Um, and then after, uh, during the, d during the, the, the first Bonn conference, uh, the Taliban that, uh, was defeated, uh, by, by, uh, by the international community, by NATO and by American forces supported by, um, Afghans who, uh, fought the, uh, against the Taliban. The Taliban were, were excluded from the Bonn conference and, as a, as a peace builder, when I think about that now, is that after, after a conflict ends, um, the defeated side, if not embraced and welcomed, will always come back with a harsher revenge. They become resentful and then become revengeful. And when people become revengeful, they are extremely dangerous. They are, they were, the Taliban were, were, were ruling for, for, for four or five years, but they were, they were kept out of the Bonn Conference. And I think the opportunity for a sustainable, I would say, or long-lasting peace in Afghanistan was lost uh, uh, in that moment. And the, the Taliban came back uh, and they started fighting um, the Afghan government and also foreigners who were in Afghanistan. There were a lot of other reasons for them to be able to recruit youngsters, uh, which I really, really read about and think about and care about. Because today, what we see basically is the failure of 
um, democracy in the triumph of extremism. Uh, but what, provi- what, what provided an enabling environment for, the, for extremism to win? That is important. It is exclusion. When you keep people excluded, and when, when, when mainly young people have nothing to do, to do, they find things to do. And extremist groups are, are, are recruiting uh, people in those kind of environments. So I think that, that, was a, that was the first problem with the transition, keeping one key part out of the, the Bonn conference uh, that basically decided about, um, uh, about a post-Taliban um, uh, structure in Afghanistan. There were a lot of other uh, um, big mistakes, I would say, uh, in Afghanistan during the transition in the past 20 years. Um, but there were also, also a lot of uh, good things, you know, a lot of developments took place. Um, media is one shining example of that. Um, civil society is another great example. Um, the involvement of young people in key decision-making processes is, 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 uh, is a great example. The empowerment of women uh, was, uh, was a great example. You know, we went from um, banning girls and women in, during the Taliban in, uh, in 1996 to 2001 f- from school and work to having um, uh, women in the parliament, to having women as ministers, to having young women and men studying in same classes, uh, you know, and debating and running civil society organizations and also establishing businesses. Um, so that, that, was, uh, that was the great part of uh, the transition. And some people th- say that um, the U.S. Interven- intervention and the international community's intervention in Afghanistan was a failure. I disagree with that. I don't think it was a failure, but I don't think it was a success either. There was a lot uh, of opportunity to do good things um, um, and in order to um, avoid history repeating itself in a very harsh way. You know, corruption, for example, could have been prevented. Um, and Afghans were, were paying um, billions of dollars each year to corruption, which was more than actually than the country's GDP. And... Um, and the nepotism was another reason. Um, lack of leadership was another another failure. Um, so, and and also seeing Afghanistan as a project, I think was not is not was not good. I I, I think Afghanistan was seen as a project. That is why it collapsed and failed very quickly as the project ended. Um, the Afghanistan was not seen as a nation um, after war to help it uh, build itself. Um, uh, it was rather seen uh, as a project, not as a partner, as a key partner, um, keep the project running, and then when the objective um, is met or changed, uh, the project fails. And that's why Afghanistan failed. Um, so that's, that's what I reflect on about uh, when, when I look back at uh, the past 20 years. Right. Do you, do you feel that it was fair? the way that the United States decided to withdraw from Afghanistan because a lot of the discourse around it has come around whether or not the United States was justified to make their exit in the manner that they did and as quickly as they did in the last, in the middle stretch of 2021. Um, But 
obviously, you know, the Taliban had been taking the country back from the beginning of the year, and it seemed evident that the sweep was going to happen pretty quickly one way or another. And the argument made on behalf of the Biden administration is that there was little other choice than to withdraw. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that there was anything else to be gained by the U.S. lingering longer? Or do you feel that that at that point, once other things had been exhausted, that was all that there was to be done? What was unfair and unjust wasn't the withdrawal. What was unfair and naive and unjust and and a betrayal was the way the withdrawal uh, uh, was managed and led. And I think the Biden administration um, um, is responsible for that, uh, for the way it was managed and for the failure that it um, exhibited um, on the Afghan people and um, and going further, further um, blaming um, Afghans for for it, and that they did not fight, or the Afghan army that they did not fight, um, um, was 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 very unfair, a very unfair judgment. Uh, Afghans did not want the Americans to stay there forever, and 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 we all understand that, uh, but it could have happened differently. The so-called peace uh, process uh, between the Americans and the Taliban could have han- could have ha- have handled um, much better. Um, when the peace uh, talks between the United States and the Taliban started um, in two thousand and eighteen, I was representing Afghanistan at the United Nations as a youth representative, and I had the opportunity to um, speak to. America's special envoy uh, for Afghanistan peace and reconciliation. And Afghans were largely excluded from, from, from that peace process. And I remember that in one meeting, not, not in one meeting, but in so many um, uh, discussions that happened at a very high level, um, I, I mentioned that the peace process was failing because peace does not happen at the top level. And Peace cannot be built through through political agreements. I think that was a huge failure that the Biden administration um, um, uh, saw um, the peace process coming uh, from 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 the top level. Um, they wanted to make peace through a political agreement, um, and and we knew that it was uh, it was going to be a failure, and that is why a lot of Afghans. Uh, spoke about it, and they also complained why why the Afghan government and the people of Afghanistan were um, excluded from uh, from the talks. the 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 Afghan uh, the agreement to bring peace to Afghanistan was actually the agreement um, that the United States signed with the Taliban. It failed, but this is not the only peace agreement that fails. In the past two decades, more than nine hundred peace agreements um, have failed. And, um, and and our, have been signed, but over 900 peace agreements have been signed in the past two, uh, two decades, but the world has become less peaceful. That is, that is why I'm saying that peace cannot be built um, only at the top and through political um, agreements. There is a lot to, to say about um, why it didn't work and how it could have worked. Right. And that's a really interesting point that I hear you saying that peace can't be built from the top down and that peace isn't contrived from 
you know, top level documents or agreements. So what would you describe an effective peace process? Where does peace need to come from if it doesn't work when it comes only from the top level? What does it mean to involve the people in a peace process? Well, it's important to um, to differentiate between um, or to have a, at least a clear perspective about peacemaking and peacebuilding. Peacemaking is encouraging and negotiating between two or more um, warring factions to stop fighting. Peacebuilding um, is social transformation of conflict. It's not a political transformation of conflict. And it's not an event. It's a very, very long process. And it's a very, very difficult process. Um, um, and it needs to be inclusive. Research show that if young people and women are included in peace talks and peace negotiations, its chances of success increases by over 30%. But we don't see that not only in the Afghan peace talks, but in, in peace negotiations around the world. And that is also one key reason that peace um, agreements that are, are constructed and signed at the top level um, yeah, often fail. So inclusivity is very, very important. Building peace from below is, is, is very important. Local peace building is 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 um, is very important. We we did not see um, those efforts happening, so that's why I think peace through a political agreement in today's world is not going to work. And second element to that is um, people who are part of a problem should be directly engaged and resolving that problem. Because a political agreement to such a difficult problem is a quick fix, and quick fixes do not work. Quick fixes do not work. Easy solutions to complicated problems do not work. To go and negotiate with a, with a, politi- with, with, with a group that has been identified as a terrorist group and signing an agreement with them and expecting peace to be restored is very naive to expect a group as, as Taliban to not commit human rights violations, to not torture people, to not uh, limit freedom of speech, to not limit women and girls from going to school. Just because they say so, I think is very, very naive. And I, I, I blame uh, President Biden directly for that. Um, so we as young people, I as a young, um, as a, as a youth activist believe that we are facing very complicated problems in today's world for which we need collective solutions. And in order to solve complicated problems through collective solutions, we need all, um, members or all uh, parties or individuals who have a stake in that problem to be directly part of resolving that problem. Because any other solution would be short-term and a quick fix that is not working in the long-term. I understand that complicated problems take time. To resolve complicated problems, it takes time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of back and forth. And it is difficult to go through a lot of the details. But that's what we need. We can't offer solutions to problem that we don't understand. 
the Americans did not understand uh, Afghanistan properly. They have admitted that. They have said that. After 20 years, they did not under, uh, understand Afghanistan well. Or maybe they did, but they wanted an easy solution. Politicians want easy solutions for different reasons, you know, sometimes for, politi- for, for, for getting political advantage. But we see repeatedly, and we're seeing even today, that quick fixes and easy solutions to complicated problems such as war and armed conflict when it is a protracted conflict um, um, as the one in Afghanistan, easy solutions won't work. The way I look at it is when the problems are born of systematic failures and systematic injustices, it takes a systematic restructuring to be able to address them. There's no Band-Aid that works. And systematic adjustment takes time. It takes years. In whichever form, it takes years of energy and effort and close, close cooperation. It's, there's no one-size-fits-all solution for any of these things. And the U.S.'s, what you were saying about the U.S. not understanding in Afghanistan um, is a great point because it seems like that's the common thing of every American war abroad, right? And not just the U.S., it's what we see from major powers whenever they try to um, begin a military excursion somewhere far from their own borders. Um, the lack of understanding of whatever the land that they're in is what ends up biting them at the end. It's what happened to the U.S. in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And the you'd think that the common themes from there would be learned from, but things happen the same way. But back to your original point about the way that you do go about changing these structures is has a lot to do with inclusivity and making sure that the people who are directly affected um, by the outcomes of peace processes are the ones who have a role in determining how they go. Um, so for you personally, how did you find your way into this sphere and into this line of work? It's coming from where you started. Well, my journey um, to, uh, to being a member of the civil society, my journey to youth activism wasn't easy. It was a long uh, way and it was a very difficult one. It was, uh, um, of course, uh, not out of luxury. The reason I got involved um, from a very, very young age was seeing problems in, in, in my society, seeing injustice in my society. Um, and I wanted to do something about it. I think that, was, that is what kept me uh, consistently involved and engaged in stepping in. Um, In a country like Afghanistan, you would see problems everywhere. Um, You see a lot of challenges. For example, when I was in school, um, teachers would beat students. I I have been physically beaten by my teachers at school. And I decided that I... Um, um, I should do something about it. And that, that was in a very young age. And then going further, seeing bigger problems in the society, seeing problems in the government, um, and trying to get involved. It is not easy when there aren't platforms, when there aren't uh, mechanisms for you to get involved. And young, there, 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 there are no uh, pathways, uh, as, as you said. And you're not welcomed. So um, that's what I experienced. Uh, but that what we do when we're not welcomed, when there isn't uh, a seat for us around the table, we make our own tables. Um, young people, uh, when they're excluded, they create their, their, their own uh, structures uh, in order to mobilize, to get together, and to 
fight for the change that they want to bring. That is what I did. Getting involved and directly in civil society, mobilizing um, like-minded young people, trying to influence decisions, trying to um, address problems at the top level, and also um, to listen in. Um, in. In growing up and expanding my activism and then becoming Afghanistan's first youth representative to the UN in 2018, and also speaking at the United Nations Security Council as the first ever youth delegate addressing the UN Security Council, um, and also speaking at the UN General Assembly, I found myself in a very unique position. I found myself in the middle, in the middle, um, uh, in the middle ground, where I had access and influence at the top level. I had the opportunity to speak, for example, at the UN Security Council, addressing world leaders um, uh, in a very prestigious stage and having the opportunity to meet with, with very senior diplomats uh, at the United Nations and also meet with, uh, with Afghan leaders, addressing the problems that young people were facing and also having the opportunity to listen in at the bottom level, to have access and, and in connection with young people on the ground with youth activists in order to bridge um, um, the divide between young people and policymakers, and um, um, and also try to influence decisions and policies in favor of young people, and address the trust deficit between young people and in in politicians and policymakers because there is a trust deficit between young people and politicians. Politicians think that young people are too inexperienced naive and young people think that politicians are corrupt and i think i agree with uh, young people on that yeah it's it's a good place to stand but on that on that note what do you believe is the way to start getting around that that's a universal problem that almost every government for as long as we know has faced where the youth and the people in power aren't exactly on the same page and the mutual distrust on both ends doesn't really get surpassed in the United States. We see this all the time with how low young voter turnout is in every election cycle. And it's pretty evident that young people are often feeling disconnected from the political world, where they feel like what they do doesn't have an impact or that it's not valuable for them to participate in systems. And the United States is one case and similar patterns are, you know, exist across the world, even though rates of um, youth activism and involvement in politics vary. But what do you think is the key, and not that there's one size, there's a one-size-fits-all key, but what is the key for getting young people to feel that there is a reason for them to be engaged, that there is something to fight for that is a valuable use of their time? I think the reason that young people are not um, um, engaged uh, in, um, in, in political processes is not because they're not interested. I believe young people are interested to get involved in political processes, but the reason they're not getting involved is because pol politics um, have become very dirty and nasty. We see um, political campaigns. I have myself worked on a political campaign. When I first came to Canada in 2019, I worked on a political campaign during the federal elections. And um, I saw how nasty some politicians are playing. And they're playing that on a purpose from so many years. They're playing that to actually mad the water so that people don't like it. People who are well-educated, I would say, and well-informed, in neutral in a way, um, do not participate when it's too um, scary, when it's 
when it's too nasty, too messy, when the process is too messy. And I think some politicians are doing that on purpose. Um, and and, and youth are, are among that group. When they see it so corrupt and messy, they do not participate. From my experience of working with young people um, um, for the past 10 years and seeing how young people get involved in political processes, I think, I, I think young people are interested. Um, they need uh, platforms, they need the support, and politics should not be that nasty and, and dirty, I would say. I, I'm inclined to agree with you. And though I think what you're saying is definitely rings true, de- definitely rings true. And I think another element to it also is the fact that young people, f- I think, generationally feel as though their efforts go unheard. I think there are waves of youth activism and youth involvement in almost every generation that seem to have peaks and then they crest and move away as they find that their concerns aren't addressed and that their efforts seem to go unanswered. And you get waves of that back and forth and the next generation gets riled up and tries again and kind of ebbs and flows. What do you think is the key for getting the actual effects of having young people involved in politics over the hump to where it is a significant political force that the actual political actors and the people at the top do have to pay attention to. Because it does feel that in most places, in most governments, um, it's quite easy for them to disregard the voices of young people, which is which is what leads to the need to create spaces specifically for youth where they're not being invited elsewhere. Um, how do you get governments to take youth seriously as um, a unit of power that actually has influence in policymaking and in deciding the course of national policy? Very difficult question. I think that young people should step up and get involved and get united and, um, and enact. Because when we speak up, they will listen when our voices are powerful. When our voices are, are, are um, individual and uh, weak, um, politicians and decision makers will not listen. I have experienced that um, so many times. And we should not give up. We should keep fighting to achieve what we want. And young people should be working together. When they're working together, there is nothing impossible for them to achieve. I will give you an example of my own work. I wanted to register an organization in Canada where I live. I wanted to register the network of former youth delegates to the United Nations in Canada. And I submitted our application for incorporation in Canada. The application was refused, not once, not twice, but three times, because there is a law in Canada that does not allow the term United Nation to be um, included in the name of an organization or an incorporation. However, we had um, and we have um, official authorization from from the United Nations to use the UN name with our organization's name, and I provided that to the government, but there was a lack of understanding. I kept fighting, I did not give up, and I tried to redefine the law basically to the government and presented arguments and submitted letters and letters and, 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 and discussed it. Finally, they approved it. And now that organization is registered in Canada. Uh, it's incorporated in Canada. And I received the certificate of incorporation. I was so close to giving up on that. 
I was actually very close to giving up on that because it was in the system, it was in the structure, and I was afraid that I would not receive support. But I'm, I'm very also happy that I live in a country where politicians and leaders um, listen to young people. They do. Not ideally, not as much as uh, we want, but they do listen and uh, they're accessible. So speaking up, stepping in and getting united and uh, not giving up, I would say, are, are the keys to uh, succeeding and um, to having um, politicians to listen. So obviously your pathway to getting into um, youth involvement was unique to yourself. What's the best way to start getting young people to feel excited about and to feel hopeful about getting involved in public service? I think hope is is very, very important. And that's what I remember from my um, childhood uh, from Afghanistan as well. We were living in a very difficult situation, but we never lost hope. We always have had, had the hope. And I think that is uh, what kept me um, uh, and, and other members of my family um, uh, kept going. Um, hope is important. But it's community. I would say community service, social change is not a luxury. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. But what are our options? We need to fight for change. And fighting for change is very difficult. Um, there will always and there has always been resentment um, towards change, towards pushing the idea of change. Even when we want to, self or to change our own self or to think, change things about our own self, uh, we face resentment from our own, uh, from our own soul. Um, and I think um, that applies to community um, service and to public service and to um, social change as well. So we need to um, um, understand that we need to have the patience uh, and also the courage to keep fighting for change. Because if we don't, things will just remain the way they are. So we have to fight um, uh, and we have to push people around us we have to push our community members and we have to push, push our partners, our friends, our generation and, and, and push our government to change. Because if we don't change, it will remain the same and it's not good for anybody. Specifically to that question, more of what I was wondering also was what, what are the ways that young people can best communicate their ideas to the people who are less inclined to agree with them, to get them to want to listen? Because there's a natural aversion to listening to young people, right? When young people get together and try to make statements about what issues they see in the world and what changes they believe need to be done, it's immediately met with a lot of resistance because that's, that's the nature of how our political systems are structured, where the voices on top and the voices of people who've been around longer are much less likely um, to be inclined to listen to young people. So just as far as in the, from a communication standpoint of how do you get across to these people who might be less inclined to listen to young people as valuable or knowledgeable members of society? How do you, you know, get, a, get your point across? I think it, it depends on the way we organize ourselves, the way young people organize their campaigns, the way they organize um, 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 their networks and their groups is very important. Um, I would say writing um, to, um, to decision makers, 
getting involved in discussions that are important, um, supporting each other um, is is also the key to have uh, to having a strong voice. As I said, there are different platforms, and I can give uh, a couple of examples of how I do the, uh, do that. Um, last July, I um, traveled to Munich to partic- participate at the One Young World Summit in Munich, and I had the opportunity to meet and work with um, 700 young people in person from 197 countries. Um, we, um, at the end of the summit, um, our group had um, a statement calling uh, for the involvement of young people in um, official uh, peace negotiations, peace talks, uh, and listening to young people. And we, we worked um, as a group. When I um, came back to Canada, um, as the crisis unfolded in Afghanistan, I wanted to send a letter to the UN Secretary General. So I decided to have it um, 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 supported, and um, I wanted to, the letter to have an impact. So when I wrote the letter, um, and basically on behalf of our network and our group contributed, I shared it to um, um, uh, I shared it with young people um, um, that I was working with in the past, mainly with our group uh, from uh, the One Young World, and our letter was then endorsed by um, twenty organizations and one hundred fifty human rights activists from around the world. So it was a very strong. Um, thing to do, um, to have the support of young people and to have the support of organizations as well. Um, And um, that letter contributed to the adoption of a resolution by the human rights, uh, by the United Nations Human Rights Council to create a special report on Afghanistan to monitor the situation uh, of human rights in the country. Um, So impact through social activism is very, very difficult. Sometimes to measure the impact is very, very difficult. Um, to evaluate the impact is very difficult. And it, it does not only um, happen with youth activism, it is um, across all other um, aspects of social change. To measure the impact of a social change uh, work, it is not easy, it's very difficult because um, it first, first you, you, you um, can't measure the impact in short term needs time. And secondly, the process to measure the impact of social uh, social change work uh, is very difficult. Sometimes we see the impact directly uh, and um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a specific um, amount of time, but some, other times it's very difficult to measure the impact. Yeah, I'm sure that's one of the things that makes it a frustrating sphere to be involved in a lot of the time, the inability to quantify your results. You know, and the patience that's required of you to have to, to wait to see how things unfold in the long run. But on that note, kind of tell me a little bit about your time as a UN youth delegate. What did you feel like you got out of that experience? What did you feel that you were able to accomplish in that role? And what did you learn from the UN? It was a fantastic experience. First of all, I was um, selected as the first ever Afghan youth representative to the United Nations. So it was happening um, for the first time uh, for my country. Um, a lot of countries have um, a UNU delegate program where they send youth representatives to the United Nations each year. But unfortunately, youth representatives come uh, from, uh, from the Western world, um, uh, not, not, not from, the, uh, from the global south. Um, 
Um, when I was selected as a youth representative to the UN, I didn't know much about the program because there wasn't anyone before me. So it was a unique experience and I had to learn a lot. But I had the opportunity to work with um, uh, other uh, UNU delegates, for example, the UNU uh, delegates of uh, the Netherlands. And I had the opportunity to travel uh, to the Netherlands and meet with uh, um, uh, Dutch youth delegates and also the Dutch Minister of Foreign Affairs. I was also invited to speak at the UN Security Council, having the opportunity to address world leaders and speak um, for about 10 minutes. Um, I also had the opportunity to work and meet with uh, youth representatives from uh, over um, 70 or 80, um, 80 countries. And I'm still working with uh, many of them. I, I know many of them today and we collaborate and support each other. I also had the opportunity to meet with a very um, senior diplomats. It was a unique experience to listen to them and uh, to learn from them and to also share my perspectives about the importance of youth inclusion in, in discussions, for example, at the Security Council, uh, because it's not, uh, it's not common, it's not usual. I also advocated for the continuation of the program, uh, which uh, I'm happy to say that uh, the program continued and my successors were also invited to speak uh, at the UN Security Council, which is, um, which is also unique because uh, you delegates from other countries have never had a chance to, uh, to brief the UN Security Council, but Afghan you delegates, which I was the first, have had that opportunity. That's an incredible opportunity to be able to have to speak to the Security Council. And on that note, the Security Council is obviously a very contentious institution because of the perceived and real gridlock that constantly it exists in it. What did you um, notice and observe in your time in front of the Security Council and the, the ways that they work? What I experienced is that they listen, but they don't take action. And listening alone is not enough. When young people speak, world leaders should follow and should take action. I think the, the existence of inaction um, was very disappointing. And it's the cost of inaction um, that um, crises uh, like Ukraine or Afghanistan uh, are happening today. And, uh, and we see that. And the cost of inaction is always more than the cost of action. So what was very disappointing for me was, um, uh, was lack of action. First, and secondly, that the United Nation is very far from young people. And it's one of my goals to bring the United Nations closer to young people. So that young people in remote villages like the one that I was born and raised in, do not see the United Nations a place where only rich and elite can have a voice or a seat. And unfortunately, that's how it's seen now. I disagree with that, but that's how it's seen. So there's a lot to do to bring the United Nations closer to young people so that young people, regardless of their gender or ethnicity or what language they speak or what country they come from have a meaningful voice and a meaningful um, engagement not just symbolic or tokenistic that's very well put and on that note 
given the current situation in Ukraine, what are some of the lessons from the work you've done that you feel can translate to how young people or civil society might organize going forward or what that pathway might look like for Ukraine? Ukraine is facing um, a very um, uh, difficult situation. It's been invaded uh, by a permanent uh, member of the UN Security Council that has the power to veto um, important decisions. I think uh, the country uh, does not deserve to have that much power uh, because it's a danger and a threat um, to international uh, law and order. And, um, and, and secondly, Ukrainian are also seeing lack of support. And again, um, they're seeing uh, inaction um, from world leaders, um, which uh, is disappointing. What uh, I think is important for Ukrainian, mainly, mainly for Ukrainian youth, uh, which compromise, uh, comprises over 50% of the country's population, is that they need to stay strong. They need to um, stay firm uh, united and speak. They need to speak up and they need to communicate and they need to organize themselves and advocate for what they believe in. Because to just wait that international community or the United Nations or world leaders will do what they are supposed to do, they won't. So it's, it's important to, um, um, uh, to act and also uh, push others to get involved and step in. But one of the barriers to young people getting involved in the political process or the peace processes of the world is, I feel the feeling that once you're in these systems, it's hard to avoid the constraints that the systems place on you as a member of them, right? If you feel like you want to work in government because you want to make government operate better, once you're in that position, it's much harder to operate the ways that you want to, right? When the pressures around you and you know, very much limit what you're able to do. How can, how do you talk to young people about how to deal with that, about how to work through the system in a system that obviously is inclined to reserve status quos, whatever they are? How can you create change with, from within systems over time? The system is not perfect. It needs change um, and it will always need change. What is important is to believe that our fight for change works. And fighting for change within the system also works. It also works fighting for it, um, out, be, being out of the system, but uh, it also works when you are in the system. So um, for young people who are part of a government or part of a structure, or part of an organization, um, they have the opportunity to uh, speak up. They might not uh, get heard um, easily. They might face a lot of uh, obstacles. But um, uh, as I said before, change is not easy and it's not luxury. It's very difficult, but we have to push for change because if you don't, things will just remain the same. Ramis, where can people keep up with you and your work? Do you have any social media handles or websites that you'd like to share with the audience? I'm on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter as Ramis Bakhtiar. I'm on Instagram. Thank you so much, Ramis. It was a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Tajwar and Natalie, for the great work.
This podcast was produced by me, Natalie Bettendorf. The music is from freesound.org. Subscribe to the pod by Genzine wherever you get your podcasts for more thought-provoking episodes. See you next time.